Welcome to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. Hey, Paul, how's your week been? My week has been a little bit crazy, but nothing like what the West Coast is going through, so I'm not going to complain. How about you? Yeah, short of not giving a weather update. California looks real bad right now because of all the smoke, but um, it just, we're re- recording on the 11th and um, the smoke is really, really bad here. And they're saying that we shouldn't go outside because of it. I can't even imagine what it's like down in California right now. Like I've, we've got the air con pumping with a, f- a new, brand new filter in and I walked outside and just instantly coughed like it's bad. Yeah, I can't imagine. So keep keep safe, everyone who's involved. And- yeah. Hopefully the winds come in and clear it all out. But um, we missed you last week, buddy. Well, it's been a couple, three weeks, I think, since we've done a intro it? together. It's been, <laughs> life has gotten in the way. Yeah, uh, uh, I had some production tasks to do and product to do, architect. And uh, you've been busy hiring half the world. <laughs> so it's hard to get together recently. <laughs> <laughs> it's, been, it's been exciting times. And no, I won't tell you who the new one is, number three. I'll have to wait. <laughs> but I would say, folks listening, hop on to the Graph Community Calls that happen the first week of each month because uh, Jeremy and or Brian have been giving an update as to the team and what's going down so we can keep up to breast with everything going on in those calls every every month. So it's great to see that stuff. Yeah. And if there's any people that are working at ISVs, building products on top of Microsoft 365 and specifically on the graph, please reach out to me, um, jthake at microsoft.com. We're onboarding um, more and more people into our tech pro- tap program and um, we do monthly NDA briefings there where we kind of bring in all the different workloads to talk about what they're doing early and spec reviews and things. So Paul's been a part of that for a long, long time, but um, it's great <laughs> Wait, now what? that we've got a team behind me. <laughs> Come on now. But it's great now having a team to be able to scale and do more with that. So it's, it's been exciting. We've got our first round of applause ever in a tap call um, at the beginning of this month. And I was like, I was trying to remember the last time that has ever happened. So that was a good kind of moment. You need those wins with everything else going on in 2020. I think the last one that I remember was when we were on campus, probably an MVP summit and you passed out the swag. I think, <laughs> <laughs> although I don't think yeah. you were on the team back then. That might've just been Yina. So that's yeah, been a while. That's true. So, um, we got quite a few links cause we haven't had one of these intros for a bit. Um, obviously, we had Dan Walleen on last week's show, and um, so we've put the post in there for the Fluid Framework now being open sourced. What's your thoughts on that? I mean, you've been to the Dev Kitchens under NDA, and now it's public. Like, where where's your mind at? So I like it. I see a lot of potential. My initial concern, though, is that the people who control the spending. <laughs> aren't there yet. And so having um, a saleable ISV thing ready is probably a risky proposition, but I'm certainly already trying to think of these concepts as we go through um, you know, product development in general, right? Even if it's even if it's a bot interacting with a person, but if that bot's doing something on the back end, it might make sense to what if there's more than one person commenting, or what if it's the bots in a channel and you've got multiple responses coming in? Um, some of those concepts can still apply. So I'm excited to to kick the tires. I haven't done it yet, other than the Dev Kitchen, but uh, yeah, I think uh, it's got a lot of great potential, and I think Microsoft could do a lot of great things with this. So we'll see what what comes out from uh, from the various groups. Over there yeah there there's internal product teams using this and they'll start showing up in the experiences more and more i think where people are going to start taking this really really seriously is when you can build components that go in those experiences the first party experiences and right now the open source doesn't get there this is really more about the the storage and um, handling the sync between the storage that happens in everybody's clients. Yeah, exactly. It, it's a good start. I'm interested to see what people do with it now. Hopefully it's not all games is my only concern. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, well, I get that. That's the initial, it's easy to put your, wrap your head around a, a game, real time multiplayer type of thing. So yeah. So once, once the surface is in the productivity suite from Microsoft, now I can hop into that productivity suite and, party on so that'd be great and then you found a post by kirk 
Berglund on Medium. Yes. So I actually found that we had a guest on Sam Bronner talking about fluid a while back and Sam tweeted uh, about this article and um, Kurt apparently is part of the architects and initial architects in fluid from what I understand. And, and Kurt goes through, it's titled deploy and run your own fluid framework service. So fluid is a framework, right? We've talked about the game, but those games talk to something. Well, this lets you use their open source to build that something that gets talked to. And so he got he has some great stuff going through about uh, and some repos that he has. I'm sorry, um, npm packages he points to to get you started running a node application service, if you will, that can then host Fluid. So again, to your point about you know it, it, things can things can be great. Imagine imagine a component that talks to some other service. Maybe that's what you need, or or you want to understand what's happening behind the scenes to help you build better. So this is great to to understand. Uh, a little background about why and how to do things. So looking forward to looking forward to digesting all that. Yeah, yeah. I'm still giggling at like the tiny delicious and road delicious as the big server <laughs> and tiny delicious being the local one. Those I still don't understand how they got those through marketing, but good for them. Well, it's not on. A, this is not on a Microsoft hosted site though, so that may be part of it too, right? Uh, yeah, those terms are part of the thing though. <laughs> um, <laughs> we were talking about this earlier on in the week. The the Visual Studio Code Spaces. Now, this is something you've been kind of digging into. So, what's happening there with Visual Studio Code Spaces? Yeah, and and the. Code spaces infrastructure, there was one of them. There was a way to get into it from a web page on online.visualstudio.com, and there was a way to get into it from a page on github.com. And the the one from Visual Studio is being consolidated into the one from GitHub. And I just posted this morning a, a summary of what I think about this. But in general, nothing's really changed. If I'm in VS Code, I want to connect to a remote service. It's still there. I think me as an external, it's going to matter because if I pay for this, it won't be through a Azure subscription. It'll be through a GitHub subscription. So at the end of the day, what's the big deal, right? So, um, but... I'm glad you brought this up because what what I'm seeing is people saying, well, Azure DevOps has got an issue. It's going away. And uh, even today on Twitter, there, I, there was a, that kind of conversation going on. And it's not. I would, I would caution folks to thinking that it's just that why run two services or I have, why have two, the, the anti-tasks approach, why have two things that can do the same feature and do just one of them? So... That's what's going on. So this is great. But I still love code spaces. They're great. And you just spin it. Did it again today. I was looking at some code in GitHub and I wanted to sometimes want to press F12 to follow a reference. And I can do it in a code space window much faster than I can do it in the browser type of thing. So Yeah, totally. No, it's cool tech. And we had a show with Nick Molnar on code spaces if you go back in the episodes. I think it was episode two on three that we did that in. So you can check that out. And then this one you added, I've never even heard of this, Project Bicep, which is part of the Azure repo in GitHub. What is Project Bicep? So let's start with the clever naming, right? So if I want to provision things in Azure, I want to provision resource. If I want to manage resources in Azure, I use the Azure Resource Manager or ARM. So now we have a bicep to help oh, you know, move the arm. Oh yeah, pretty clever, right? And so the idea here is that the arm templates are complicated, Jason. You have parameters and you have a description of resources and they have links together. And so it's, it's hard to get started. And we had Sam Kogan on to talk about this a while back. Um, Sam's episode was probably around the same time as it was 209. So even farther back than what we had on, on Nick. But, but the idea around here is that I can create a, a bicep file, which is a little bit cleaner, JSON to describe what I'm looking for and then run this bicep command and it'll translate it to the actual ARM template that you need. So they're calling it a, a DSL or a, a, a domain specific language that'll help you get through there. And so really it's just an easy way for me to write a JSON description of what I want and then they do the work to make sure all the ARM knobs and buttons are set up the way you want. And when you're all done, you have the ARM template that you can deploy just like everything else, right? So I put a, little, a, a link into the GitHub repo. They have a playground as well. So I mean, I'll dig out that that link as well and, and uh, then you can go through and see what it's like. So if you're doing stuff, if you're deploying stuff out into uh, into 
Azure land, you're going to you're going to kind of want this, right? And so and their playground is a lot like what you would have seen with the remember the old TypeScript language where you could type in the TypeScript in one window and the other window you'd see the JavaScript. And then we just write. The same yeah, deal. same kind of concept so to help you understand what's going on. So it, it, I think it'll be helpful. It certainly helped me already to, to see what stuff that's going on. That's right? cool. So and then um, Vincent, before he moved, he, he was in a PM role working on the graph and now he's switched over into a uh, an engineering role, but he's gone back into dev. So he's working actually in the graph de- developer experience team on SDK. So he's actually working on the Java SDK right now. But before he did that, in August 31st, they announced a public preview of a an additional delivery mode for change notifications. And so um, you can use Azure Event Hubs to receive change notifications rather than traditional webhooks. This is really cool because, you know, a lot of people were already doing this where they were kind of having that middle thing and dropping it into event hubs from a webhook. And it kind of removes the need for that um, and, and removes the need for having that kind of exposed notification URL because under the covers of Graph, we just go drop it in whatever uh, event hub you create. There's a bunch of setup here and there's a you know documentation thing. So if you're doing a lot of stuff around changes within the like objects on the graph, I definitely recommend having a look at that public preview. Um, we are really looking for feedback. This is not something we're committing to put GA yet. Um, and so if you do are interested, we need to hear it. Um, and so there's information on there on how you can give feedback on it if you've tried it out. Maybe I should put my... Uh Kicking up the tires higher up on my to-do list than from what you're telling me. <laughs> yeah, I'm framing it in a way that unless we get like awesome signal and backflips that this probably won't get prioritized. And so um, just knowing the team that's running this. Um, and so if you this is something of interest, I would please keep the tires now that the preview is open um, so we can kind of keep that hot. Yeah, Almost. exactly. Because uh, it paves the way for a lot of other inter inter service communication things, and absolutely. And yeah, so yeah, yeah, especially stuff at scale. So check that out. Um, and then the other one, uh, we've done these for a long time now. Um, Susanna in the marketing group underneath Mike Amalan does this. We're having these global Microsoft three six five dev boot camps, which start in October and run through to November thirtieth. Now I, I believe all of them are online. I saw the Australian ones got announced and you know, John Liu and Cameron Dwyer uh, from One Place Mail and Ishai, I think, was on there. You know, So we're getting a lot of community members presenting and running these boot camps, which I think is a great way of doing it because you know, when I was external, there's a different level of openness and opinion you can share that you can learn more from sometimes than a Microsoft person doing the whole thing end-to-end. And so I'd encourage you to check those boot camps out um, get signed up now. I'm pretty sure they don't fill out, but um, it'd be worth checking now and getting yourself registered. Get it in your calendar so you can start canceling all those meetings that start overlapping with those days <laughs> and kind of dedicate yeah. some time to it too. I mean, obviously Ignite is coming up in a few weeks and there's a lot of really good Microsoft 365 developer sessions, but um, the boot camps are more of a primer getting started. So if you're net new to this tech, it's a great way to ramp up. Um, and, you know, I would just add that you might want to sign up for the Code Spaces uh, preview because maybe perhaps you could, you know, run your boot camp it's in true. a Code Space and not have to worry about, you know, all that other fun stuff. So the, the, yet another great technology. These events are great. I haven't done one in a couple of years. Almost did one here in Chicago this week, but there's a SharePoint Saturday, well, SharePoint whatever day happening in November as well. So we're, we're doing that instead of a boot camp. But uh, with them being all virtual, it's easy enough to hop on one in your time zone. So. For my local buddies, there's one in St. Louis on the 4th, so that's the same time zone, easy to do that one. So, yeah, I love these. And then um, in the community news, I mean, we've already talked about um, the one from Kurt around Fluid. Um, there is also Mark Marcus Mueller's SharePoint blog, and um, he's been doing a, a bunch of series of things around like SPFX and Teams and Graph and really living the dream of reusing knowledge of SPFX to do the team stuff. <laughs> and this blog is, you know, I, I'm going to describe it compared to like the level of detail that like a Waldeck Mastercars goes into in terms of explaining things with code snippets and, or like a Chris O'Brien, like it's end to end basically with screenshots and code snippets and like linked to GitHub. And so if you want to follow something through and get it running, this is a great way to show what they're doing, you know, end to end here. 
um, using kind of the likes of graph SDKs and SPFX auth and running these things in Teams um, as that um, messaging extension. There's some really cool scenarios there. And so I'd, if you're not following Marcus, I'd highly recommend checking out his blog. We should actually get him on the podcast too. Yeah, that, that's a that's a actually great idea. Can't believe I haven't done it before now. Um, but And one thing I, I want to point out about this specific post that you put in here, the the, the um, like the MS Learn has a module on uh, on this task modules. And, and I helped with AC work on some of the, 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 the code around that. But that scenario is really just clicking a button and it opens up a, a, a little window and you can see something, right? And because AC is involved, it's got planets. What Marcus has done here is he's actually said, here's an actual task that you might be trying to accomplish. And so that this use case is more real world or more friendly to folks that maybe you can explain this to, uh, granted, you don't want to show the Yo, the team in the Yo generator to your end users, but maybe this scenario of how I have to do something and I'm in teams to kick that off. So this is a great, great approach to come in from a more of a business use case. So I love that. Yeah, the kind of the documents review thing is really, kind of quite common in an organization, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's something that's done outside of the IT department, <laughs> which is always easier to, to get fucks going. So yeah, I love it. Great job, Marcus. And then another one of my favorite bloggers that's in my you know RSS feed constantly as well is Glenn Scales. And Glenn has been in the, the kind of the exchange space for uh, as long as I've been in this industry, I think. And, um, you know, it's been really interesting to see the things he works on with clients and then what he shares on his blog, much like a lot of our MVPs. And um, he actually does a really good explanation of explaining the throttling limits around Microsoft Graph, specifically around Exchange Online and the mailbox concurrency limits. And the fact that, you know, it, because there is a concurrency limit four, if you batch stuff and you're going to the same mailbox more than four times in that batch that you're actually going to hit those limits and so he has some tips and tricks there um around this and you know gives his own opinion on it but it's super useful to understand that i think one thing that will again patting vincent on the back is that you know glenn does highlight the documentation around those limits that are in um the microsoft graph documentation now where we're kind of going down to that granular level on the workloads of exactly what the limits are for each workload um and so i'm really glad that you know before vincent moved into the engineering role here where i'm really excited to see what he does that he actually you know got all of that achieved and documented and we you know we get so much praise for that from partners and so um this is just an example of just going to that next level of learning around hey look batch is great but just be aware of the concurrency stuff inside of um, those rules yeah and you know what it highlights to me Back in the day, I would write I'd write a SharePoint customization and, and I didn't have to worry about massive scale because it was my organization and it was my server. I saw what was going on. Right. And even at the early days of, of Microsoft's online services, it didn't bother me too much. But now I'm trying to swim in this pool where there's a throttling is a real life thing. Global scale is a real life thing. I need to consider a global scale in my stuff as well. Not necessarily, be, well, ideally I get massively successful, but again, if you want to, if you want to be optimal and not have to suffer through these things, you need to think like that. And I'm glad Glenn's kind of leading the charge on that. So great to see that again, things that the developers need to think about more than just curly braces. Right. And so um, this week's show, we had iChur on, and I think in the intro, I actually call it iCar. <laughs> which is the wrong pronunciation. Welcome to my world. But we're all used to us screwing up names, so this is nothing abnormal. But Aichur, um is a new dev advocate and is just wicked smart and it's been a lot of fun working with. And so we wanted to get her on as a first time on the show, talk a little bit about her experience with the graph and M365 dev, but we will definitely get her on again. And I think I just want to call out, like if there are people that are listening to the show that are working with customers that are building out, you know, really exciting, compelling business solutions on top of the M365 dev platform. We'd love to hear from you. We do, most of our guests are internal Microsoft people um, and occasionally get MVPs on as well. But, you know, if you're listening to the show and you've got some real kind of like kick-ass thing you'd like to talk about and we know we can scrub the customer names from it and make it more generic, we'd love to get you on. So please reach out to Paul and I on Twitter um, and um, we will schedule on the show. So with that, Paul, have a great weekend and um, I'll uh, speak to you next week. All right, see you.
Okay, so I'm really excited to have Aika on today. Um, Aika, thank you for jumping on the podcast. Hi, I'm really glad to be here. I'm a big fan of this podcast and I'm a um, frequent listener as well. So it's a big pleasure to be here today. That's cool. And so you're in Turkey right now, in Istanbul, right? Yes, exactly. I came here to work here for a couple of weeks and then I'll be back to Dubai when weather is nicer. <laughs> <laughs> what would be not nice weather in Dubai right now? I'm intrigued. Yeah, um, I don't know um, about Fahrenheit, but in Celsius, it's like 45 uh, to 50 degrees right now there. Oh. So it's not really uh, nice. And in Turkey, it's really nice fall weather. Um, so uh, I'm really having walks and it's better to be, you know, it's easier to breathe here. <laughs> yeah, no joke. That's I didn't realize it got that hot there. I've only ever, when I fly back to Australia, I fly via Dubai. And it's usually we arrive in the evening and then we just have the evening before we get another plane the next morning. And so I don't witness that type of heat, but that's crazy. I, I definitely would not be surviving in that heat. Yeah, but it's really nice in December. I think it's better season and you can still go to the beach and, you know, breathe outside. <laughs> that's cool. And so um, you're a relatively new Microsoft 365 dev advocate in Microsoft, but you've been at, how long have you been at Microsoft in total? So I've been at working at Microsoft for four years now, and I started actually as a fresh graduate in my previous role, and I just joined advocacy team two months ago. That's cool. And so how does your role differ from when you were in your previous role to like now being a dev advocate? Like, What are the main differences you've noticed? Yes, actually a lot of different things. I started at Microsoft as a premier field engineer under Microsoft Services. And it was actually a consultancy team where we uh, frequently visit customers and we work uh, side by side with them in projects and um, workshops and so on. So basically it was like 100% of customer focus uh, for four years for me and also building different projects. Uh, most of them were related with Azure technologies. And now in the cloud advocacy role, I'm getting a chance to write about those projects and share with the developer community uh, what I learned so far. And um, I'm actually putting most of the things I did so far in my GitHub repository too. So it's becoming really nice and fun because um, it was 100% of customer focus for a long time. And um, I didn't have any time for the breath actions, like talking on the um, events in the conferences, creating some content documentations. And it was always the really nice areas to work. I was really interested in doing that for a long time. And this advocacy role has really given me a chance to uh, talk about what I did so far that's exciting i mean i'm personally really looking forward to seeing the content that you get get out there because in the meetings we've had and the stories you've shared it's super exciting to see for me what you're doing with the graph but also more broadly with like microsoft freethink Five as a dev platform as well so um congrats on joining that team and uh, we've had bob on the show bob german yes. on the show before he's also in your team and um rabia williams was just announced as we're recording this today on the 8th of september thanks and so it's, it's really cool. It's just great to see so many, you know, true advocates out there, like being in this team. And um, yeah, if you're not subscribed to all these people's blogs, then, you know, you're really not doing yourself justice of learning about everything that's going on. So I'd highly recommend that. And so the reason we wanted to get you on the show today was really to talk about some of those engagements. And I think one of the biggest things I always get is, you know, well, what can you do with the developer platform with the Microsoft 365? And what are some of the scenarios that, you know, your customers have built um, on on the platform? And so I, you know, I reached out to you, I was like, this would be a great show just to kind of talk through some of those things and get a bit more of an understanding about like the challenges and, you know, whether there are any limitations you have to be aware of as you're doing these things or some nice clever workarounds. I just really didn't start with like these engagements uh, for people outside of Microsoft with from a premier field engineer, a PFE perspective, I think they're called customer engineers right right now. I think they've been rebranded. Um, how does that come about? Like what's the typical length of an engagement? And does it, is it compare the same as say, you know, what a normal service integration company would be doing as a consultant outside of Microsoft or is it different again? 
Yes, so um, right now they call themselves as customer engineers, but the times that I used to work as a PFE was partially different than a normal consultancy. We also had the Microsoft consultancy team and they were having their own architects, project managers, and they were building the solutions end to end. For four years as a premier field engineer, I worked on site with customers in sometimes short term, sometimes long term. We always started with a workshop where I talk about a chatbot, how to build a chatbot uh, by using bot framework, how to publish the chatbot and uh, use Teams as a channel or web chat as a channel and how to consume, let's say, graph to get calendar view in a chatbot. Uh, it was just taking one week. And after that, always one of my customers ask like how can we use this in our own systems because they usually have their security layers and and their authentication ways how can we implement this in our own environment and then we move forward with the proof of concept which is deep deep dive how we can manage to do exactly the same thing on their own environment by using their own apis that point, actually, um, I realized that Graph API has a huge capability of getting anything from anywhere because um, most of the time we were consuming Graph as an API to get calendar view to get tasks or send notifications or emails and uh, lots of things. And we were always building a new application. Sometimes we were using Power Platform to build a basic automation. Sometimes we were building chatbot to increase productivity in the uh, work environment. So it was always different scenario, but um, we were always consuming graph. And back then I was not a Enter 65 developer. I was just a .NET developer and uh, building applications, consuming graph there and learning about graph day to day. And now because of the COVID time, we started getting more complex engagements using graph. It was not about like increasing product productivity stuff only anymore, but it was also about getting some insights about their M365 environments, how people are working at home, if they're working longer than they're supposed to do it, if they're working during the weekends, like building uh, good looking dashboards, more complex dashboards for the management, as well as the first time when we started having lockdown, uh, actually it was around February, March in Middle East Africa and Europe time zone. That time we started getting requests from the healthcare companies, education companies, like how can we move our environments faster from, let's say, their own platform to a team so that they can quickly continue working, continue in a smooth transition, like old entire education system, healthcare system. And um, um, they wanted to have a smooth transition. So during all those processes, um, for example, having a background uh, provisioning or adding all of the students on teams, adding all of the healthcare professionals on teams and start collaborating from there. It was a huge learning from our side to how to consume Microsoft Graph in different places like Azure Functions and automating all of this stuff from Azure function jobs. Um, so these kind of stuffs were actually not only for 10 people or 100. We did this for 1.5 millions of people in a couple of weeks to make sure that everything uh, continues as is by using Teams platform. So it was not only like uh, increasing pl- uh, productivity, but making sure of work life is going uh, exactly the same at home for the people in healthcare and education too. So it was kind of challenging, but big learning for everyone in services and Microsoft. When, when you talk about those kind of numbers, I mean, that's a huge scale. What kind of considerations did you have to take into account with those APIs, I'm assuming you can't just speed loop through 1.5 million users and send create, like there's a behavioral thing you have to learn with the graph to get that to work. Like were there learnings there you had by doing that? Yes, actually, um, uh, there were lots of things uh, we needed to do and it depended on the customer's environment too. Some of them didn't want to, to use cloud and wanted to do everything on promise. And some of them prefer cloud because it would be easier for them to just use Microsoft data centers. So 
uh, it was totally different architecture and platform choice depending on the customer request. But during that time, actually, Microsoft Graph Team was super useful because we were always in the field with their suggestions, as well as Microsoft Teams product team, lots of different people and program managers help us changing st stuff, making everything as quick as possible. We actually even updated some part of the product during the release of customers' requests. So while we were learning from each other, when we were collaborating with the pro program managers across Graph and Teams platform, um, actually lots of things has changed in my, let's say, actually in my experience, we always call Graph in a, a very straightforward way. But what I learned is that in that amount of people, it's really not easy to call Graph straightforward. Uh, we usually prefer consuming batch requests and doing this batch request in different VMs, different environments, so that it will be easier. Sometimes if customer is flexible, we use containers to call these batch requests to make sure that we are able to provision everybody at the same time. Um, when we were having trouble with the beta version, we were actually, uh, we were suggested to use version one as well in some of the endpoints. So it was for sure not a straightforward transition because number of people are so huge and it's not quite easy to manage. But at the end, we successfully managed to move 1.1 1.5 million people uh, on Microsoft Teams using just graph provisioning from PowerShell. Yeah, that's interesting. And so with that, the um, you, know, you bring up a good point around the beta and the V1. Um, you know, we don't officially support beta in production, but they are available. And we do see a lot of people like starting in beta and not noticing the V1. And, you know, just for people listening, we in most cases, the engineering groups have got a lot more infrastructure spun up for the V1 endpoint than beta. And so especially in the scenarios of what you were just talking about, like it absolutely would make a difference to go against the V1 endpoint versus beta. But in general, you know, if the V1 exists, you should absolutely be using it. I'm guessing when you were doing it, some of these things didn't have V1 endpoints. They were all just only on beta. So you were probably having to do the juggling between the two. Um, but that's a fascinating story. What kind of things, were you just basically creating the team or was there more to it? Like, was it creating tabs and lists and uploading files as well? Like, was, was it scaffolding out the site? Sorry, the teams in a certain way? There were um, two different approaches when we were working on projects with customers during COVID. One first part was for the users where they can feel comfortable with separate teams, let's say for each department, we created a, a we provision a new team and we added related people under that team. Some of them are supposed to be admins, some of them are just need to be users and some of them need policies to be able to schedule meetings. Some of them have no policies to see calendars at all. And the second approach was for the management. Um, since we started provisioning lots of different teams and also we were creating channels for each group, even for, let's say, an education environment, we were building teams for each class and we were creating channel for each lesson for that uh, team. And teacher was the only one who was able to create a call. And uh, she, let's say she was managing all the class during the call. So she had all privileges to mute everyone. So these were all details about the users. There was another ap approach, as I mentioned, for the management. Since we started increasing number of functions on Teams, they started looking for more insights about what's happening on their own environment. Let's say for any department uh, who are working between these hours during the meetings, what happened? If they have a good quality of internet, if they were able to join the meeting and they were able to record it and so on. So they started asking more and more insights what's happening on their work environment, which was Teams back then, since we were all at home. And we started working for how to get call quality about the 
Microsoft Teams. We, we also had the call quality dashboard, uh, which were provided by the product team. But on the top of it, we started getting like, how can we make sure that customer or the end user can mute everyone? How can we make sure that we have 60 or higher percent uh, calls uh, were successful? Everyone was able to join the call. They also started looking for attendance lists. So we were checking like, how can we get attendance lists for the Teams meetings? So now it's available on Teams live events, but back then it was not available for Teams meetings. We were just able to see who are invited, but we were actually looking for how to get who participated actually and between which hours. So when we started getting more data, they were asking more specific, like who joined between uh, what time, like if they stay in the meeting for five minutes or three minutes and so on. So data was more important than the, let's say it was equally important for the user interactivity because um, people try to make sure that everybody was using the platform successfully and it was really helping for their day-to-day -day work. So we started creating lots of Power BI dashboards using Microsoft Graph and also consuming Graph in the Power BI dashboard dashboards required some different setup on Azure platform too. So depending on the request for sure. Yeah, I was going to say, so there's a few approaches to doing that with the graph. What was the approach you took to get that data into the Power BI? Were you running functions or some kind of background job to drop the data into a database and then Power BI report onto it? Or were you going, what was, you know, was there a different approach you did to that? Actually, the goodness of Graph is that you can call Graph wherever you want. So we were quite flexible um, and we were trying to find the re most real-time way of getting data. So for one customer, we try to call Graph from functions to get data, save it to blob storage and then connecting to Power BI so that they'll be able to create good-looking dashboards on Power BI um, using Azure Functions and Blob Storage. Another approach was consuming Graph Data Connect because they were using, they were looking for data for calendar and messages. So we just uh, use Graph Data Connect from Azure Data Factory. And Azure Data Factory has a direct connection to Power BI. We directly get data from there. There were more ways to consume that. We were getting support from the data Premier field engineers too. They suggested, they actually highly recommended Azure Snaps back then uh, because it was easy to query data and get whichever specific data we are looking for. And instead of getting the entire data to Power BI, we can just get a specific data and build a dashboard. So the data in real time will be faster and dashboards we're building will be, in the quality wise, it will be better than the one we are getting the entire thing uh, in the place. So yeah, so there are lots of different ways. We also use old data queries too. And um, last one I use actually was creating a custom connector to Power BI and calling Graph API from the custom connector with some filters in the query and getting exact data directly from the Power BI. And this was a solution basically for the customers who like to use on-premise solutions. Um, you can also get the data from Graph like that. And so you, you've done blogs on some of these scenarios already, but I'm assuming that, that you know, you're going to be writing more about these things because this is something that comes up a lot um, as people want to do those kind of, especially under COVID uh, workforce, kind of that's something that people are really interested in seeing more of. Um, and so um, we'll make sure in the show notes that any of that content or links to the, even the Microsoft generic content of building custom connectors or connecting to the graph with OData, um, that we can have those things linked to those show notes. So that's great. And then like the scale of that with that many users, did you have issues with it to kind of pull that data into Power BI or was it handling that pretty well? Yes and no. Actually, as, depending on the data, some of the customers were having 3 millions of lines every day. Um, let's say one of the requests was getting um, audit logs from Azure Active Directory and they had, since they had a huge number of users, they were having 3 million lines of um, data in audit logs every single day. So wow. 
even it was not recommended from the Power BI team to consume Power BI directly uh, by using OData query because Power BI is not a storage. It's better to use a storage tool keep that data and then consume it per BI just to show good looking graphics and um, showing some insights to the business. Um, once we tried getting the entire audit log, actually it was working in on my proof of concept uh, simply and fluently. But when we try exactly the same solution on customer's environment, <laughs> it was actually crashing like crazy. And actually the entire desktop was crashing with all of the applications. So it's better to use it with some storage. But with Power BI, we did great things in proof of concept level. It's great to use all data queries, but in the real life scenarios, since the number of um, users are big in Azure Active Directory, or also when you're getting a huge data in uh, from M365, it's always better to keep it in some sort of storage, either in the cloud or on-premise. Because I consider Entry 65 as a big data. There's a huge data in the background and managing that data in a specific platform is not easy. And most of the time, it's better to curate it and keep it somewhere uh, in, the, in some sort of storage and then consume it however we like to consume it. Yeah, I find also that if you're an editor of the Power BI reports, that it's often a lot slower to build and change things if you're going against the OData versus it going against a, you know, you said blob storage or a SQL database or a Cosmos database. Um, it just seems to act up a lot nicer in refreshing content if you're connecting to those things. So that's definitely a good learning there for sure. So I, I want to step back a little bit. Like we talked a lot about the scale of that team's provisioning and the benefits there from an EDU and a healthcare perspective. One thing I always get asked is like, what are the other scenarios where M365 just sings with customers? Um, those ones are no brainers. Like the whole notion of students in a lesson with the teachers and different channels for like that's a shoe in people get. But what other scenarios have you seen with M365 in your customer experiences where you know, you've done that proof of concept and the customer's just gone, wow, like this is just right on exactly going to make our life so much easier. Yeah, actually, wow points were always chatbots using Microsoft Graph in the chatbots were really attractive for most of the people because they really like having a virtual assistant kind of scenarios, having um, all of the tasks in the morning uh, when you wake up, receiving all of your tasks at 9 a.m. or to be able to schedule a meeting through a chatbot, uh, sending message directly through a chatbot or chatbot managing your own calendar. These kind of scenarios, let's say, mm -hmm. let's call all of them under productivity scenarios, are quite attractive uh, when it comes to having wow moment uh, moments. And actually, they really prefer having those kind of scenarios in their own SharePoint pages or Microsoft Teams or having on their own websites. Um, most of the customers I was working with was uh, banks or healthcare, especially before COVID, it was all about having entire banking system um, on website on a chatbot too. So a chatbot will be able to manage and do exactly the same thing that mobile banking can do too. After COVID, we started receiving healthcare requests in the uh, global healthcare pages that how can they share COVID recommendations through a chatbot. When you ask questions like if I'm a COVID uh, or not, then chatbot will be able to guide you correctly, like what are the uh, symptoms and uh, how, how you need to continue, uh, what are the hospitals you can get the tests and so on. And including airlines during this time, actually everybody is looking for virtual assistants kind of stuff. So um, I think consuming graph on those platforms are also really nice in the productivity level, as well as creating more interactions with our end users too. So I am torn a little bit on this and you need to oversell me on it. <laughs> I found my experience with chatbots, the, I think the most canonical one that I found the most success and people in the show have heard me say this before is definitely 
canceling my cable subscription and not having to ring someone, a human being and, you know, manipulating the bot to get to the point where the cancel button actually shows so I can just cancel my contract without talking to a human being. But, um, you know, there's that argument that you could do that in a mobile app and it's probably going to be easier. The, the chat bot's kind of not visual cue showing you the path you're going down. Whereas like a mobile app can have that visual cue of like where you've been, where you're going, where, what part of that step process you're in. Whereas a chatbot is kind of like, you can scroll up and see the history of the chatbot. You can't really see the future path yet. So how, how do you pitch that with customers on like what the benefit would be um, on a chatbot versus that mobile app or a web app running in a browser? So there are lots of best practices we discuss with our customers. And the first pitch we give is, of course, today's three years olds are sometimes better in tech than us, but giving a chatbot to a two, three years old, and they should be able to manage where they would like to go. We always say that simpler, uh, the better in the chatbot when it comes to chatbot. If we give opportunity all the opportunities to the end user, if we say that, hi, hello, then end user can ask many things, million things. So it is always better to guide them in the right direction with giving some options, sharing with some cards on at least telling them these are the capabilities of that bot, but there will be more coming, coming in the future. Because when it comes to chatbots, people tend to ask more questions and actually unrelated questions that they, they're not supposed to ask. When we guide them, it's actually easier for them to understand where they would like to go. Let's say we have a huge page of all services like visa service, license service. We need to share all the options with the end user by clicking and having more interaction, it will be quite easier for them to lead the final direction. But when we say that, hi, I am um, this website bot, people tend to ask questions like, what's the weather like today? And if there are like uh, 2000 services in the background running, but if there is no um, web service calling the weather API, then your bots will look not as smart as expected and probably most of the people will not be satisfied from that solution. So we always say like keeping it easier is always better for us and starting with the point with lots of descriptions to the end user and guiding end user with the uh, directions and sharing some to-dos and uh, telling them what's the story of the bot, what's the characteristics of the bot is always giving more satisfaction than not giving anything. And you, you make a good point, like the, a lot of the web at the moment and the, you know, the banking one, the bots, and um, I was on a mortgage site the other day and, you know, canceling that cable connection. The, the challenge that you have is that it's like tech boxes. There's not many of them leveraging cards like you mentioned. And so I guess the less typing you're doing really with a chat bot and the more just like pushing on cards or clicking on cards with yeses or nos or prescribed answers is going to make that pretty fast. Um, so that, that is a good definite thing to take into account. And then you also mentioned uh, another scenario around your excitement around to do. What what excites you about to do? Like we just had Rohit on the show, um, who's the PM that owns the to do APIs. But for you, what does that unlock now that that's in beta on the Microsoft Graph? Yes, thanks for asking that. Actually, even before I joined the advocacy team, one of my colleagues, um, Christopher, he was asking me how to get all of the to-do tasks from the by, from the Graph API, and he tried to call Graph API to get all the tasks from, let's say, Planner, to-do app, directly to any platform he wants. He was using Azure Functions, but back then, even though we had the capability of getting tasks, we didn't directly have capability of getting planner tasks and the to-do tasks at, at once. I think the idea of having everything in one place and also getting notified about what you need to do, just like a setting reminder on a mobile phone, is always nice for us because um, we're, we're living in a world of very rush and it's sometimes really hard to check different websites and applications. Um, I actually just started working on a content where I create 
a flow using logic apps and calling to do API by using custom connector and creating recurrence every morning we can receive our to-do tasks by using Flowbot. So Flowbot can ping us and tell us like these are your to-do list for t- for today. I think it's a really nice capability and in personal productivity wise it's really useful because there are lots of different projects even under planner we need to make sure that we're keeping track of all of them as well as under to do you can have lots of different lists too it can be like personal ones uh, let's say grocery list or it can be uh, again related with the uh, work you're doing you can see all of them in one page uh, even like one ping of a flow bot on teams and see like what, what's coming up for today so that's why i plan to do this content and hopefully it will be done end of the month and i'll share the content with everyone yeah, I'm excited about that. I mean, I don't think you can have talk about productivity without tasks is my my big takeaway. And, um, you know, the fact that they're targeting getting this to V1 endpoint very, very quickly, like within a few months um, is really good because they've been piling this with a bunch of partners internally for the last few months before they released it to public beta. So that's really exciting. Where do we keep in touch with you? How do these people find you? What's the best places to go? Yeah, so... Um, the only place I'm active these days is Twitter. Other than that, I have all the other social accounts, but I'm not quite active. IJBS, IJBS, you can find me there. And um, you can find all of my projects and contents on my own blog, uh, quickbytes.dev. And everything I'm writing is available there too. Sometimes I'm sharing the same content in Dev2. So you can search my posts on Dev2 as well. And most of the events I'm speaking, I am trying to collect all of them under events in my own blog because I realized that sharing all of them on my Twitter is sometimes messy. So just like this to do API, <laughs> I'm trying to keep all of my events under one page. Um, so I keep updating my blog events page if you are interested in listening some of the graph related topics in conferences you can check that out too yeah that's pretty much it twitter is the main area that i'm active (laughs) so a-y-c-a-b-a-s a-y-c-a-b-s because the other one was taken already (laughs) (laughs) you can't have everything right yeah Cool. Well, look, um, I know I'm between you and your vac- imminent vacation. So I really appreciate you coming on the show to, to record this. And uh, please, please, please enjoy. Shut down shut that laptop, turn off all the notifications on your phone and enjoy your time off. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're I'm welcome. looking forward to your next shows as well. I'm a big fan. Again, I'm telling. And um, thanks for having me before my vacation. It was like Good booster for me, for my vacation too. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Something easy to close on. Well, yeah, we will absolutely get you back as you're you know, pumping out all this content in your new role. So again, congratulations. You are perfect for this team. And um, I'm really excited to see all the content coming out. So um, yeah, thanks again. And um, we'll have you on very, very soon talking about more stuff around M365. Thanks, Jeremy. for listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at M365DevPodcast and check out our show notes at www.M365DevPodcast.com. To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. <laughs>